Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. This last session I am in charge of, I'm gonna be kind of hosting it. We're just gonna pretend like we're doing a live podcast interview and you guys get to be the audience. And I have a couple of interviewees and I'm also going to participate in the discussion myself. Um, so we're gonna talk about coping with your cancer diagnosis because everybody does this in different ways. And so what I'm hoping to do is to be able to illustrate that I'm gonna do this differently and my two panelists are gonna do this differently and you're gonna do this differently. And at the end of the day, there's no like perfect right way to do it. It really is just very much learning what do you need and leaning into uh, and becoming aware of what those needs are. So we've talked a lot about awareness, we've talked about meditation, mindfulness. Um, so we're gonna talk a little bit more about those things. So with that, um, I will just briefly introduce myself and then I'm gonna bring my panelists up as well, um, Linda and Carrie. So if you guys actually wanna come up to the stage, then we'll just like, let's just run through a brief introduction of ourselves and our diagnosis. All right, I need the mics, one over here. Okay, so. I mentioned at the beginning that I am a patient myself. Uh, so you guys go ahead and have a seat. And um, I was diagnosed three years ago, like July 31st. It was Harry Potter's birthday. Sorry, had to throw that in there. Um, so 31st, went suddenly blind in one eye. Like, I mean, not completely blind, but bad enough that I may as well have been blind. And I went into my eye doctor that week, and she's like, huh, I can't really see. And it became a there's a massive tumor in your eyeball. Um, it was completely blindsided, like no pun intended. Um, but I mean, it was a huge shock. It was complete surprise. I mean, like most of us, I don't think any of us, maybe other than Anne, had ever heard of this. And Anne only knew about it because her mother was diagnosed with this. So you know, that, that initial shock, that was like 100% how I felt. Um, at the time, my baby was nine months old, and I had three kids, so, but my youngest was nine months old, and it just kind of became this whirlwind of lots of things to juggle all of a sudden that were just like thrust onto my plate. And it became this, this situation of like, okay, here you go, <laughs> handle it, um, because that's what life <clears throat> handed me. So, Carrie, what about you? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, in this? Okay. How in-depth do you want me to go? So let's keep it under, like, under a minute. Okay. Um, fast, fast story. Um, I was, it was uh, before 2012, and I'd started having some gray flashes that I were, was ignoring in my eye, but it was an optometrist from Costco who found my tumor and immediately called to get me into a retinal specialist who said there was not anything that was a problem. So I spent the next year and a half trying to get to doctors to explain to me why this gray fog was getting darker and darker and coming over my eye until ultimately I lost the vision in that eye. And um, it was, I even had a neuro, neurologist tell me I was going blind from depression. So um, through that process, I really had to advocate for myself and say something is wrong. Ultimately, I was diagnosed. It was one of those moments where I had no idea. I'd never heard of ocular melanoma. And when the um, retinal specialist that I ended up finally getting sent to, who at that time was the guy in the Southwest, who I needed to be seeing, and I didn't know it, and he turned around and he said, okay, it's cancer. You have um, ocular melanoma. And I just looked at him like, what? <laughs> I was thinking macular degeneration, something like that. Cancer never even occurred to me. And so um, that first year, I refused to Google anything. I didn't look into it. I put myself in his hands. And a year later, he said, so have I told you to see an oncologist? Uh, 
no, <laughs> you haven't done that. So at that point, um, I did get very fortunate to end up going to the first conference I ever went to, which was in Washington, D.C. with the Ocular Melanoma Foundation, and it was a turning point in my life. Had I not had that information, I don't know what I would be doing today, but I can say that it saved my life, and it saved my ability to interact with doctors along the way, because five years ago, actually six years ago, my dormant and stable tumor started growing again, and so my eye was enucleated, and that's where I'm at at this point. Okay, thank you so much. Linda, what about you? Um, my diagnosis was over the summer of 2018. Um, no symptoms, routine eye exam. My optometrist uh, saw a spot. She sent me to a retina specialist, and he sent me to an ocular oncologist. And uh, it was actually the spot that was seen by the optometrist ended up not being cancerous. We're still monitoring that one. But with the eye ultrasound that the ocular oncologist did, they found a second spot. And that did turn out to be um, cancer. And so I had treatment later that year, but uh, I consider myself a lucky one. Routine eye exam, no symptoms, and uh, we found it uh, early. Okay, all right, so just for basic history, um, I know we've talked about initial diagnosis. Uh, we're also just going to briefly tell you, have we metastasized or not? Um, so for me, about two years into my diagnosis, a spot was found on my liver that was treated last year in November, and I'm currently disease-free, so technically living with a stage four diagnosis. That's me. Carrie, what about you? I have not metastasized. Um, there are spots on my liver that they are watching, but I've not metastasized. Okay. No metastasis. Okay. All right. So we're going to kind of move into a guided discussion. Um, so I found a graphic that a patient, I think her name is Brianna, uh, Brianna Ward, I think maybe, and she had shared this in her stories, and I saw it, and I just was like, oh, this made sense to me. So I want to just, by show of hands, everyone in the room, and I guess virtually you can, you know, raise your hand in your room if you want. Um, have you ever been told, like, oh, you're a cancer patient, or have you heard someone tell a cancer patient, you're so strong? By raise of hands, have you ever heard that phrase told to cancer patients about them? Have you seen it on a movie or a TV show? Anywhere. Doesn't necessarily mean it has to have been told to you. Um, but I have been told this just because I have a social media presence. I, that was part of how Melody found me. Um, so, you know, I have openly shared my story from diagnosis literally the weekend that I found out I had a tumor in my eye and they couldn't define exactly for sure what it was until today. Maybe not quite as detailed, but um, like I, it's just been something that for me has been kind of therapeutic to share on social media and to connect with an audience that has already kind of had previous experience with me being vulnerable about hard things that I've gone through in my life. So when I started getting this kind of comment from friends of like, oh my goodness, you're so strong, it kind of jarred for me. Um, and I didn't identify with it. So I found this graphic kind of helpful because I think that it just really validates this, this idea that none of us asked to join this club. And I think we could all agree on that. Like if we could go back and like pick what do we get to go through, like would we say yes to this? We'd all probably be like, no. Um, so you're in a club that you've never asked to be in. Like Carrie, Linda, do you guys do you agree with that statement? None of us asked for this. And so yes, I would say we are strong. There's strength in advocating for ourselves, in learning to empower ourselves as patients. But at the end of the day, it really it's more like we're building resilience, right? Because the difference between strength and resilience is strength is what you need to be resilient, right? To get back up when something knocks you down. Because I mean, has anyone just had just the one bad news in their life, or have you just kind of dealt with bad news as it comes in many ways and way, you know, shapes and forms, right? Like, okay, so Carrie, have you dealt with more than just the initial diagnosis shock? No, I feel like my life is a series of moments where I have to be resilient and yeah, bounce back. Yeah, no, exactly. So it's not just, sorry, I'm just adjusting my mic to the middle so I can turn my head. Um, it's not just the one time, right, that we ever get bad news. And so just learning how to take that bad news as patients and to get back up is so important. And it's kind of a skill that we have to develop to survive. So I like this picture because the flower didn't choose to grow under the rock. It just was seated there. Maybe the rocks fell down, there was a mountain slide, who knows. Regardless, it's surviving a situation that it didn't have a choice in. It's surviving, but it still didn't have a choice. So I just want to validate that for you guys. Um, 
just I guess as we start is that I just I honor you guys for being here and for being a part of a club you never asked to be in. Okay, so the next part of our discussion, I want to ask you guys, um, Linda, did you feel like you were like handed a, a rule book when you got diagnosed? Did your doctor give you a, a booklet that said, "Here's how to deal with cancer"? Yeah, right. No, no, not at all. And um, yeah, lots and lots of questions, and really no, no place to go for the answers. And that was the most frustrating part. So, as you were trying to get those answers. Um, what were some of the ways and kind of things that you figured out along the way? Answers for coping I mean, or just answers yeah, for... Yeah, for coping, for medical questions, for anything, really. Well, you know, I, I did the thing that you're absolutely not supposed to do and consulted Google. So, you know, when everybody <laughs> says don't go to Google, you don't go there. Uh, it just made things, made things worse. Um, yeah, it was just a real struggle. And we, we uh, my husband and I, who, you know, this is... Cancer is a, a team sport, is what we quickly learned. And so my husband and I together, you know, did everything. And um, yeah, we just um, tried to go behind Google. We went through our second opinion. We went for a third opinion. We were calling everybody that we knew. Just, I mean, just tried to do as much research as possible. And this is the frustrating thing about OM is there's just not a lot out there. Yeah. And then when you do, you know, get a doctor's appointment, you're waiting three weeks, and then at three weeks you're you're trying to, you know. And, and I found out, um, I found out my um, genetic testing um, right before Christmas, and of course I didn't like the result of that. And there was nobody to ask anywhere, and I really, you know, had to wait for people to come back from the holidays, and that just exacerbated things. But uh, yeah, we tried like crazy to get answers, and. Um, you know, maybe maybe that was not the right thing to do either. At some point, you just maybe stop thinking about that or just accept that you're not going to get all the answers. Mm, I think that's a really good point, right? That's, at some point, we're kind of thrust into this uncertainty, right? And we kind of have to get to a point where we get as much information as we can, and then we have to also... It, it's this crazy duality, right? Um, that idea that you can be happy and you could also maybe be experiencing grief at the same time, right? Um, you can experience two different things simultaneously. That's kind of, it's kind of this funky, weird feeling in our bodies, I think, but, but this idea that we could find as much information as we can while also acknowledging we may never have all the answers, right? That's, at, that's a hard yeah, thing to be. Yeah, at some point it gets unhealthy trying to get to all the answers. But I think that there's power in trying to get that information, right? Like in trying to find answers, asking those questions, and just being as um, as big of an advocate as you can for yourself. And I think Carrie can definitely speak to that, that if she had just accepted the answers she got instead of questioning them maybe based on intuition or just your gut feeling, then things would look different. Yes. Um, first of all, the first thing that you were talking about, about finding information, when I was diagnosed there really wasn't a lot of information other than a doctor saying, you're going to die. And I heard that several times. And um, going to the first conference I went to and hearing doctors talk about this and about the research that was beginning at that time and meeting people like myself who were struggling with monocular vision and this diagnosis that we know knew nothing about was a key thing for me where I could seek out other people as a support group and seek out um, information. So along the way, I've watched the number of groups develop and grow, and I like that support network that we now have that we can tune into and we can turn other people to when we find out that they've been diagnosed. We could say, oh, look, I've got resources for you that can help you. In terms of advocating, I've had to do that my entire uh, from diagnosis to now. And it's become the number one thing that I say to everybody, you have to advocate for yourself. When you know that something's not right and a doctor or somebody else is telling you that you're wrong, stand strong. I had to do that so many times in that year and a half before I was diagnosed. And um, if I had not done that, I believe I'd be dead today because I stood my ground and said something's wrong send me somewhere else, something's wrong, send me somewhere else to ultimately find out that I had a growing tumor in my eye. So I call it the filthy beast. <laughs> 
You have many good nicknames. And honestly, because Carrie was one of those people who went, connected with other patients, found, you know, maybe by happenstance or just as they were developing these resources, these groups, she became someone that as soon as I was diagnosed in Arizona, somebody had heard of her in my circle of friends somewhere on social media. And they're like, oh, I think I know someone that has what you have. Like, I mean, I could be wrong, but you know, maybe reach out to this person. Come to find out she had already been following me on Instagram for like a long time about completely unrelated stuff. Um, but had she not learned about the resources and felt so connected, felt so, you know, so much of a benefit from that, then she wouldn't have been the kind of patient who would have seen the value in helping me or really anyone for that matter. Because um, I know I've, I've seen and watched her just take so many patients under her wing from our local area as well as just online. And I just, I appreciate that about you for sure. So let's just kind of draw, like let's just, let's just acknowledge that we throw the rule book out because there really isn't like a rule or a set of rules for how you're supposed to cope with this, right? So if we were to maybe just each say, what's something from our own survival guide? Um, what do you think you would say is one thing like you could pass on to anyone in this room who is going through what they're going through today? Um, Linda, do you need a minute? Survival guide, yeah. Um, one, like just one, one small piece of advice, I guess, is what I'm thinking. You know, the discussion earlier about the mindfulness and living in the moment, um, that is a very important thing to do and it doesn't come easy to everybody it doesn't come didn't come easy to me so it's something you have to to practice that's why they say practice meditation and practice <laughs> your yoga because you are practicing it and your mind will wander and you will go to those dark places and you just have to pull yourself back but the mindfulness um, practicing gratefulness that um, living in the moment I mean in, in my you know I went to the library and pulled out all kinds of books on how to cope with cancer and um, those are the things that always surface to the top. Or if you go on these Facebook groups and, and people talk about what has been helpful, it's, it is really living in the moment and um, working at that. Yeah. You have to work at well, that, like but said, I that's, found that's that an active That's an active practice. I mean, I think it doesn't really matter what stage of life you're in. It's gonna, it's gonna feel a little bit challenging for anyone and everyone. I know I have three little kids and sometimes I'm just like living for the moment they go to bed <laughs> um, because the day just is long as a mom of young little kids. But I think that the same can be true of all of us, that we get, you know, we get caught up in our phones, we get caught up in you know, the drama of relationships and what's going on in our lives and really all of the appointments. Like there's just so many different things. Um, Carrie, what about you? I have found <clears throat> along the way that it's laughter, because uh, if you knew my family, um, I'm, my last name is Younger Howard, we go by the Yoho's, and it just turns out that I wear an eye patch and my husband is a below the knee amputee. So you couldn't have a more ironic thing to have in your life. And um, I just have to share this, the very first conference I went to, there were several things that made us laugh. They took us over to a conference room, and as we go down the stairs, they're solid brown. And to us, who are monocular, it looks like a slide. And so we stand there laughing, thinking, oh my gosh, how are we gonna get down this? So everybody's holding their arms and getting everybody down. We keep walking to the conference room, and it's glass walls. And we laughed and said, oh, somebody's going to go into that wall. Well, sure enough, in the middle of um, a talk, and it was real emotional, and I get up because I don't want to cry in front of people, and there's a man standing at the door, and I'm thinking, that door is open, and I go running full face into the door. And, of course, nobody in the room flinched <laughs> because we're all like, that could have been us. So um, I'm the person that trips and falls. I'm the person that walks in the walls, and I've taken the side mirror off my car probably four times. Me too. So, well, I, yeah. well me, me too, but both my eyes work. So. <laughs> but you just have to find ways to laugh and try to do that every day because we sit and I also try to look for things to just be grateful for, the little miracles along the way. So that's how I cope. Um, I call those tiny pockets of joy. Those are like, that's, I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Brene Brown, but she talks about twinkle lights. And... Um, I think, I think for me, what I would say is just, I mean, basically everything that I'm sharing on these slides is like what I have written as my survival guide that I'm just trying to share as a patient to patient. Um, so I guess I should add that in there. Disclaimer, I am not a therapist. 
I am just sharing and we are sharing from our experience and hope that our mutual experiences will help you. Um, but I think I would just say connect. Um, I think connecting is super powerful and, and it doesn't mean, I mean, you guys, you guys see me on social media, you guys know me from the podcast, but I mean, I'm, I'm talking connect with other patients, yes, but also connect with the people that are most important in your life. Um, and I'm gonna try not to cry. Oh, my sisters have become some of my closest friends. You know, the kids that when I was a kid I argued with and I bossed them around. And I used to just think to myself, like, mom, like you're such good friends with your sisters. How, how are you good friends with them? My sisters hate me. And like, cause I'm the oldest. And so, you know, of course there's a different dynamic when you're the oldest and you have younger siblings and, um, and I drive my sisters nuts and they drive me nuts, but like, I mean, we spend as much time as we can together. And I super, I mean, I value those relationships so much more since this diagnosis. And I have just, I just, I think that that's maybe just part of learning to be present is that I have just learned to lean into those, you know, the ones with my kids, the moments. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm 100% not distracted or not, you know, stressed out or whatever it is that I'm feeling doesn't still happen. It just means that when I'm with those people, I'm trying, like here, I'm connecting with you guys and I'm doing the very best that I can, barring any technical difficulties, to be off my phone and just be with you guys and be present. And I think there's just so much power in that experience and in allowing ourselves to experience that connection, whether it's with our families, our close friends, other patients. Um, I think that there's, there's just a lot of power in that presence. Okay. So if you guys have grandchildren or children who are young, I hope you saw Frozen 2 when it came out or sometime in the future since then. Uh, but Frozen 2 came out when my kids were little-er, and it was kind of at the height of the beginning of the pandemic, right? January 2020, I think, was roughly when it came out. That's when I went to see it anyway. And I remember this line, and as March rolled around, and then eventually July, when my diagnosis happened, this became kind of the mantra in my life coaching course that I was participating in was this idea from Olaf of, we call this controlling what you can when everything feels out of control. Because sometimes when you get diagnosed, there's, well, not even sometimes, I mean, when you initially get diagnosed or when anything changes, right? When anything changes in your diagnosis, whether it's that your tumor grew back or there's a threat of possible metastases or maybe your labs just look a little weird or something changed with your vision and now, now you need to get a Vastin shot. Who knows what it looks like? But when things change, it can kind of cause that upset, right? Where we start to feel like, oh my gosh, everything is out of control again. Whatever little bit of control we thought we had feels like it disappears. So let's talk for just a minute about like, what are some of the things that you guys have come to kind of control where you can when there's other things, things that are out of your control, like we talked about, how sometimes you can't get all the answers. So when you can't get all the answers, what do you do instead? Um, or, you know, when there's just things that feel out of control. So for me, this, this looks like um, very explicitly boundaries with like my phone call. Um, I, when I first got my metastatic diagnosis, it was, and, and even my regular you know, initial diagnosis, it was like my phone was ringing off the hook. Like I could not get a minute to myself because I would put my phone down or I would be working or I'd be with my kids and then suddenly the phone would be ringing again. And my brain, because of the urgency and the initial diagnosis kind of fear that comes up, my brain would go, oh, I have to answer that right now. And the more that I did that over you know, the course of a couple of weeks or a month, the more it caused just extra anxiety for me. So what I started doing is I just put my phone in airplane mode when I'm say doing a workout or a meditation or talking with a friend. If I don't want to answer a phone call from my doctor then, or from you know, someone who wants to check in with me about, well, how's this going and do you have this? Like if I don't want to be demanded of by people, then I choose to shut my phone off in a way that they can't get a hold of me because that lets me protect whatever little bit of time that I really need, especially in those heightened moments. Um, so Carrie, what's some ways that you have found you have been able to kind of regain control? Well, I kind of <clears throat> a little bit do what you do. If I need to, I retreat if I need that. And I didn't used to be that person. I was the person that was never home at all. And now I'm the person that says if I need to be and retreat and do five hours on my Kindle, which sounds crazy, but if I just need to do that, I do. And um, I kind of, you keep using the phrase, and I like it as well, lean into it. I mean, you kind of have to lean into the things that are happening, but not let them um, take over 
everything. I think sometimes we can get so involved with the social media aspect of it. We're in all these groups and suddenly we start reading some really sad negative things. And if we're not careful, um, that has an ability to control us and I will withdraw from that for a while. I don't remove myself from social media, but I kind of retreat temporarily from a board or um, interacting heavily in social media just for a time until I'm ready to come back. I, it's kind of all in with that mindfulness, taking care of your own mental state at the time. So, so question, would you say um, in the 10 plus years since you've been diagnosed that this has come naturally or has it been something you had to learn? Like gradually as new things surface, you have to kind of relearn it every time that something different changes. It's been constant relearning because like I said, 12 years ago, almost 12 years ago when I was diagnosed, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I, at that time, for as far as I knew, because people weren't connecting, I was one of the only people in Arizona at the time. And so I really felt isolated. I know that this was this huge group with Dr. Sato's group and people in Philadelphia and Florida and California, and I didn't have anyone. So I had to learn on the ground running and figure out who can I connect with, how am I gonna get information, and not focus on the negative. I, you hear the negative, you know that these are th the statistics, now what do you do with it? Am I gonna be a statistic, or am I just gonna live my life like I should? And I never had the opportunity to have any of the testing on my tumor genetic or otherwise. So I live my life just kind of winging it and not thinking about it unless I have to. And that comes around when it's scan time and then I have to. And I go through a brief time of scanxiety, you know, and then, and I spent, I, I, sorry, I'm rambling here, but I spent a few years avoiding scans entirely. And um, my daughter had a dream and said, um, Mom, I dreamed you died. Would you please go get your scans? I had avoided them about three years into my diagnosis. And um, actually, I did for the first two years. So those next three, I did nothing. And she had that dream, and I thought, my kids are worried. I don't, I'm making them nervous, not just myself. And I went and found out that my dormant and stable tumor had grown. And within three weeks, my eye was nucleated. So... Um, I don't think we should ignore the important stuff and try to do what we have to do and then um, let it go for a while. And I know that's hard because everybody's at a different place on this journey, so. No, that's such a good point. And it's, I think it's, there's room to just kind of insert in there that this looks different for all of us. And so, you know, as we're talking about what works for us, like think about, I just, I hope you guys can just reflect and think about maybe some of the ways you've already done this. Because I, I would be willing to bet almost all of us have done some of these kinds of things. We've coped in similar ways because we talk about it. And I hear it, I see it when I talk to you guys. Um, and I think, you know, there's just, there's just so much power in being able to share that with each other and especially to share it with new patients who are largely just feeling like they're kind of drowning in new information and in all of the angst that comes with this initial diagnosis. Um, Linda, what about you? What do you do to, like, to control what you can? Like when things feel out of control, right? Something changed and you just feel like, ugh. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, people say, you know, it's not cancer until the doctor says it's cancer, right? So like, you know, when you're waiting for your MRI results, you know, you you go to all these dark places. What if it comes back like this? And and then what if that? And what if that? And, you know, just just dwelling on those what ifs is just, it's, 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 not a good thing, and you you really have to just um, and maybe again that's living in the moment. Like right now, we are all <laughs> we're all here. We're all on equal ground with everybody else who doesn't have OM, right? You know, and and what's that saying? You know, you you only die once, but you live every day, and you just you know don't don't worry about the things that haven't happened yet. Mm, now that's such a good point. Yeah. And another thing that I would add to that is. Um, Something that I started doing, because my brain is a really big what-if brain. Like, it's really good at, you know, what if, and then five billion things have happened in that what-if statement already in my brain. Um, so something that I heard in a, it was a workshop. It was a, called an empowered workshop with um, a fresh chapter, which is another nonprofit that focuses on helping patients cope after their diagnosis. We've done a, a brief interview with them and a, a workshop before, like, sometime last year. But they talked about what-ifs of possibility. And 
So what if statements can apply lots of different ways? But I loved what they shared about this idea that, okay, if your brain is prone to what if, right? Because sometimes it is. Then just kind of flipping that a little bit. It doesn't have to be flipping it to something completely different, right? You know, it, it doesn't have to be what if, you know, ABC bad happens because of this eye tumor and to the complete opposite of what if the tumor is completely gone and I wake up and it's gone. Like it doesn't have to be extreme. It can just be simple little things like what if I wake up tomorrow and I feel okay? Or what if I meet with my doctor and I feel like I'm able to remember all of my questions? Like it's just kind of asking your brain different questions. Um, and something that I have just learned over time with lots of life coaching and, and um, time in therapy myself is just that the brain really likes to answer questions. It's really good at looking for answers. And so when we ask it what if, like what if whatever bad could happen, it goes looking, and then that's when we spiral, right? You guys, I'm sure anyone who has experienced anxiety of any kind has felt that kind of a spiral. But if you ask it a question it can actually find the answer to, then it's it's just a much better um, place, I think, yeah. to be mentally. So kind of along those lines, one thing I practice, not necessarily for cancer, but just other anxieties in my life is, like, you write down. And, and so for me, like, writing. You know, some people talking, writing, find out what, what outlet works best for you, but... Um, I practice, again, with something that I'm anxious about, what's the best thing that could happen? You know, what's the best possible outcome? You write that down. Mm -hmm. Then you write down, what, what's the worst possible outcome that could happen? And then you write, well, what will probably happen? And I think that last question is kind of grounds you a little bit more. Like, you're probably not going to have all this awful stuff happen. You're probably not going to have all this best. What's, what's the most realistic? And it kind of gets you out of that catastrophizing, you know, like, oh my God, the worst is always going to happen. It kind of brings you back, like, this is probably not going to happen. And for me, writing it down and looking at my words helps, but maybe just talking to somebody about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I think that both things can apply. I think you definitely could talk it out, and you could just go through that in talking with a friend, with your caretaker, um, you know, your spouse, a therapist, if you see a therapist. Um, but also, that writing can be very powerful, because when you can take something and put words to it, or you can, you know, kind of make it tangible. It just, um, I have, I have just found that it, it really moves it to a different area of my brain where it's no longer as freaky feeling and it's a little more solvable. And I think that if we can just kind of get into that problem-solving brain, that's just, that's just where, that's where I, that's where I like to live. I sometimes freak out, but um, oh, I do. But okay, so let's just talk briefly, like a couple other ideas. This could be, you know, controlling what you can. That could look like hobbies. Um, this can look like controlling the information that you get. That might mean that you determine with your doctor, hey, I don't want to know all the answers right now. Not until I'm a little more ready. I'll tell you when I'm ready. For say, you don't want your biopsy results the minute they come in. Say you want to have a little more control of that information. Um, so sometimes for me, this has looked like asking my doctor to tell them. Um, or to, uh, to disable, I guess is the word, yeah, to disable the MyChart notifications so that they can upload my scan results because they're going to upload them. They have to. They're, the doctor needs to look at them. But I don't have to look at them, and I don't have to get an email notification the instant they show up if I don't want it. And so just like kind of learning those little things about yourself, that do you respond better when you have that instant information? Or does it cause more of a panic than you really need to deal with? And sh would it be better for you to get you know, scan results or blood work or whatever it is? Would it be better for you to get that information in the presence of your doctor? And you know, this is kind of a trial and error. It goes back to that rule book, right? There's no rule book. There is no way to do this that is not your way. You're paving your own survival guide as you do it. Um, and what you do and how you talk about that, maybe the things that you share with other patients is, hey, this worked for me, maybe try this. Those are also helping kind of co-write their survival guides. Um, so anyway, I hope that helps. Do you guys have anything else you want to add? All right. OK, so this is something that I didn't really think about as much until my eye was affected, right? Um, I think that what I have noticed, and I think most of us with, with ocular melanoma have, I've heard a lot of you talk about this, is this idea that people look at you after maybe you've gone through brachytherapy or enucleation and, and have a prosthesis, or maybe you don't. But like regardless, barring, barring I think, I mean, I, Carrie, I'm, I'm going to use you as an example. Barring Carrie like where, or someone who wears an eye patch, there's not really a huge visible thing, right? It's not like we lost our hair um, consistently across the board, right? If you have OM treatment and you have brachytherapy, it doesn't affect your hair. It affects your eyeball. And the eyeball is, it's, you know, 
different. It's just different than what we see culturally on TV or what we grow up hearing about, like, oh, when you have cancer, like, you're going to go in radiation treatment. It's going to look like this. And I think that those kind of misconceptions can feel frustrating to us as patients when we're talking to our friends, when we're talking to our family, because they're looking at us going, well, you seem fine. And we're sitting here going, no, one of my five senses was changed. So that was someone, someone I, just, I think it was my, I don't know, my therapist or somebody else told me like just that that's such a key thing for us to recognize as patients and to not invalidate ourselves. If someone tells you you look fine and you don't feel fine, then I think honoring ourselves where we're at is so important and just, just recognizing that just because someone tells you you should be fine doesn't mean you have to feel that way. Um, and to just really learn to give yourself grace for the hard days and the times that you feel like you're just deep in a pit of despair and you can't climb out. Um, because that happens. It happens to all of us. Uh, I think that's, you know, it kind of just goes back to what I talked about at the beginning is that all of us are building the skill of resilience. And I, I like using the phrase that it's a skill personally. And I, I mean, I tattooed it onto my arm. Like I, I love the phrase resilience because it's, it's just, it's what we do. It's what all of us have done. And every single one of you in here in this room is so resilient. And I hope you recognize that about yourself, um, no matter how far in or how fresh you are as a patient. As a patient. Um, and I would argue really everyone, everyone who's living life is really just building that skill of resilience one step at a time. So our appearance though, I think it's something we get really self-conscious about and something that I realized after I got a prosthesis um, because I ended up last year, um, my eye was enucleated because it suddenly started to deteriorate. Um, thankfully wasn't the tumor growing back, like some people have had that happen. I know that's kind of a rare instance, but in my case, I had enough radiation that the eye tissue was damaged. And it was damaged to the point that it was visible on the outside. And it became kind of an emergent, like we gotta get your eye out really fast. <laughs> um, but when I got my prosthesis, I kind of went through this adjustment phase of, oh, like this is gonna make me feel like me again, right? Like maybe, I don't know, it just, it kind of felt like, okay, I'm gonna put this piece back. And I wanted my eye to look like as much like myself that I could remember as possible from before, you know, everything was affected by ocular melanoma. And then I got it. And that really wasn't how it felt because I was still blind and I could still see that it was different. And so I kind of, there was just a little bit of this adjusting to this idea that I wanted it to look the same and acknowledging that it never, and that was really hard. Um, because visually, like, I mean, most people that I talk to, they tell me all the time, they're like, oh, your eye looks so good, or, you know, whatever it is. And when I had brachytherapy, it was just this constant train of thought in my head of like, yeah, but like, it looks really small, or it looks this way, or I can't follow you when, you know, like, if I'm turning my head, my eye doesn't track. Um, like, just those things that we become more self-conscious about. Um, so, what I kind of had to learn to embrace, and I think I would say, Carrie, you taught me this, and also other patients that I had watched really just embrace this one-eyed space of, I don't have a, a, an eye filling this, I'm wearing my conformer or I'm wearing a patch, and I'm just gonna be who I am, was just this idea that if you can get to a place where you can be confident in who you are, regardless of you know if you have an eye or you don't, then it becomes that much easier to kind of recognize and I think maybe just let go of those insecurities over time, they still show up. They still show up for me, for sure. But I think just learning to love myself exactly where I was, you know, like when I had a conformer and I couldn't wear a prosthesis, like that helped on those times that it came back up and I went, oh, but like, do I really like my prosthetic? I don't know. <laughs> um, so with that, Carrie, like how would you say you have adopt, adapted to, you know, just learning to love yourself through this process? Um, I decided early on I was gonna make peace with the filthy beast. That was, here I was, no eye, I'm extremely vain. Sorry, I just am. Bright red lipstick, like the bling, and I decided if I'm going to wear an eye patch, it's not going to be black and ugly. I'm going to make it for what I would like, and I'm going to make a bunch of them. I probably have 50 eye patches. I rotate them constantly, and I've spent a lot of money making them, but it was a matter of I couldn't afford a $5,000 prosthetic, and even today, if I had $5,000, now I wouldn't do that. I just, it's not important enough for me. I've made enough peace with it that um, I'm not bothered by the patch. It doesn't bother me in public. Um, yes, people look. 
I actually invite people when they're looking, if they want to ask questions, I'm there to answer them. So I'm on, this is the hand I was dealt. Now how am I going to live it? What am I going to do with it? And so that's what I've done with this beast at this time. Well, and I so. just want to draw attention to the fact that Carrie just demonstrated the previous slide. She controlled something that she could control. She could make eye patches, so she did. And how, like, I mean, I, if any of you guys have interacted with her, like, I hope you could see, like, just how empowering of a person she is. Like, she's so um, confident in herself, and I love that about her. And, and it's not because she has an eye or she doesn't. It's because she is that way as a person, and she's built that skill, I think, and that resilience. Um, Linda, how have you kind of had to learn to adopt this, this idea of loving yourself through whatever is going on? Uh, gosh, just listening to, you know, your, your added step of having to deal with the prosthetic and, and you know, the monocular vision, that uh, I, can't, I can't relate to that, but I think listening to you, I, I, you know, it's like you can't get back to that place that you were before. You know, none of us can get back to that place, that life we had before we were living with cancer. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's a grieving process, but, uh, you know, I think if you're gonna be successful with it, it's just that part of your life is gone, and this is your new life, and, and, and you just accept it. And you be grateful for the things that you have in that new life. You know, and sometimes I, I think about, um, I don't think I'm as happy now as I was before I was diagnosed with cancer. I don't think I'll ever get to that level of happiness that I had in my life, because I was just living life, you know? Everything was great. Um, and so sometimes I feel bad about that, like, geez, I'm never gonna be that happy again. But I I'm pretty happy, you know, and I'm pretty okay with, with, with my life. And I think you just kind of get to that point. It's like, I, I, you know, I, I can't get back there, so quit trying to go back there and just live with what you've got. There's plenty of good things with what you've got. So I think uh, that makes a big difference. I love that. Okay, so this is something that um, I was in, like I was in a cabin when I first got this kind of initial idea that maybe something was going on with my eye. I was on a vacation with my family and I actually had a life coaching, like an individual life coaching call. And I was talking to him about just some other medical stuff because you know, not only had I been dealing with vision issues that I wasn't really fully aware of yet, I had other medical things that had come up that were kind of freaking me out and, and throwing the C word, you know, the cancer word out there. And I was like, oh, well, I don't know. And so it was already pretty angsty before I even got an official diagnosis that was actually not related to what we had been checking. Um, but he, he just was really good at kind of pulling this out of me. He just asked me, he said, you know, what are some of the things that you've gone through? I just want you to think about some of the other things in your life that are unrelated to cancer, right? Any other hard thing that you've gone through. And, and I actually had someone who is just a friend on Facebook who he, he's now a therapist and he works with um, addiction recovery, but he, he commented on one of my first posts um, and he said something kind of along this lines uh, of just like, I want you to just think about everything you've already gone through that we as your maybe social media community have watched you go through. I have gone through postpartum depression with all of my kids. I had a miscarriage. I have had a faith crisis or you know, just kind of evolved in my, my shift in religion. And multiple other, I mean, we could all argue, we've all gone through hard stuff, right? Not, I mean, not cancer, just other hard stuff. We've all gone through it. That's what life is, right? We kind of have to accept that life is just hard sometimes. But what he told me is he said, what if, what if everything you've already gone through was preparing you in some way, even though you didn't know it, it was preparing you to go through this right now, your diagnosis. Or, you know, in the case of when I first had the news that there might be a metastatic spot, um, I lived in denial, full, full disclosure. That was a very healthy place for me to live for three months when they didn't have a confirmed biopsy because I couldn't handle that idea that I would be sitting there with this, uh, yes, you have metastatic disease and we're doing nothing about it. That, that would have been way worse for me. And so most of you guys who met me last year, if you met me at the convention, I already had a metastatic diagnosis. <laughs> I just was in denial. It was kind of like, a, okay, well, innocent until proven guilty. Like, till they can prove it in a lab, I don't believe it. And that was how I got through the day because I lived in denial. Um, so, but I think just this idea of like looking for the proof so Carrie, I guess I just want to ask you, um, 
What's something in your life that you had already gone through before you even had cancer that helped or that you could kind of look back on now to help you cope with something new? Well, some of them are extremely personal, but yeah. I had in my life a series of things that had happened along the way that had led me to the belief that I was strong enough in myself that I could go through hard things. And um, I say that all the time to myself and to my kids. We can go through hard things. I have four daughters and always say, rub a little dirt in it. You know, we're going to bounce back. We're going to be resilient. This is, you know, we're the mighty yo-hos, you know, we're going to be fine. And so early on in my life, I've had to do that. And so, yes, when I heard the cancer diagnosis, that shocked me. When I heard the statistics about it, um, that was a painful, a deeply painful moment. Like the amount of fear that comes when you first hear the actual statistics about ocular melanoma and having... Um, existed before. Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, when you were initially diagnosed, they were much scarier. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And the first year, um, my doctor, he had not told me anything along the way. So at my first visit that following year, he said, so have I told you to see an oncologist? Uh, no, I thought I was good to go. No, here's the statistics. And he laid this stuff on me where I'm like, okay, wait a minute. I thought, I was <laughs> I, I thought we were good. <laughs> so why are you telling me all this? So I... The good news was is that I end up, through a fluke, suddenly going online at that point and finding out about this conference in D.C., and I go and hear Dr. Sato and different people talk. Dr. Harbour, I think, was there, and people, I was hearing terms about research and the drugs that they were using and meeting people so that that first ocular um, uh, oncologist appointment I went to, first and last, by the way, because in the first five minutes, this oncologist said to me, well, I'm not going to let you be my patient because, quite frankly, you have a cancer that, you know, you can die from, and it's a waste of my time and money, and insurance isn't going to pay for it. And I had my husband and mom, my mother, there taking notes, and I'm listening. In the first five minutes, this man tell me, I'm not worth his time, and there's no hope. But I had gone to that conference, and I had heard these people talk, and I saw people just like me, and I heard the names of the drugs that I could mention to him, and I had doctor names to rattle off, and I said, no, you can't cure me if I metastasize, but you can buy me time, and all we want is time. All of us in this room want time. So as long as we have a doctor giving us hope and telling us, okay, I'll do whatever I can to just give you the time for the next great thing to come along, that's all I want. We had a 45-minute conversation. He said, okay, I'll see you. And as we walked out to the door, I just kept walking. And my mom and my husband are saying behind me, no, 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 he said he'd see you. And I said, no, he told me I was going to die in the first five minutes. So he's not worth my time. So those were along the ways that the way um, for me to learn that I had to fight my battle, that I couldn't do the white coat syndrome and just because a doctor told me something, I had to believe it. I had to find out what I needed to do to cope through this. And to this day, no oncologist in Arizona has ever seen me. I had three other oncologists tell me the exact same thing. So I don't have one, and I don't think about it, and I have learned in every doctor appointment I go to and what I teach my children and I teach the people that I meet, advocate for yourself. Don't listen to a no. Um, be prepared to be strong enough to say to a doctor, wait a second, that doesn't make sense to me. Or have you heard about this information? We tend to kind of shut down when they're telling us something. We need to kind of empower ourselves a little bit more that we're worth the time. We're worth their time. And we have to remember that when we're with them. We're worth their time, and they need to buy us more time. Yeah. Well, and I think just listening to Carrie share this, she has taken you know, some of those initial experiences, right, and just kind of naturally over time has just applied this idea of, okay, I've already done it here. She did it with, she did it with the first doctor who told her, the neurologist, who told her, oh, you're just going blind from depression. And she did it again with the next doctor who didn't believe her. And so the idea that I'm trying to get across here is, you can prove to yourself um, 
that you can do the next hard thing, if that makes sense. So when you have a scan, right? Sometimes I have to trick my brain. I have to kind of psych myself out into thinking about scans. And so Linda, let's, let's maybe talk about scans with you if that's okay. Um, and just kind of go into it with this mindset of, okay, been three months, I just did a scan three months ago. I was okay three months ago. Not necessarily like a 100%, like I, I didn't have any, any problems on the scan. I'm, I'm talking about like getting through the physical act of being in the MRI machine or having the scan done and getting those results. Like that kind of piece of absorbing and taking in that information, like I survived it. So you all have survived your diagnosis, right? You're all here. We've survived getting bad news. We've survived getting neutral news. We've survived getting news of our scans. So I just want you guys to think about, um, I guess that's my advice to you as a patient, is just think about when you're having a hard time about the next hard thing. Think about all the other hard things you've done, whether they're cancer-related or not, because they really do help, I think, just kind of flip your brain into that place of you know, remembering it's that like, I am... Gonna, I'm gonna like show up to this. I'm gonna show up the best way that I can and the best me that I can. I'm not gonna let fear keep me down. Um, so Linda, what would you say is maybe some of those kinds of things that you have seen in your, in your journey or that you would kind of pull from now? Yeah, well, well I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking everything, you know, what can I draw on from like the pre-cancer diagnosis? What hardships have I gone through that helped me? you know, with the cancer, and I'm thinking, you know, my life was pretty damn good right up until that diagnosis, so I really didn't have anything <laughs> to, to draw from, like, oh, I had this bad experience, and this is how I got through it. I mean, that was probably the worst news I ever got up to that point in my life, and I was completely unprepared for it, and I, 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 I completely fell apart, you know, in fact, no, when you asked me to, you know, talk about coping, I'm like, I'm probably not the best person to talk because You're I really exactly fell apart. Right um, but that's real because everybody yeah, handles this differently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think there's anyone in this room who didn't fall apart on some level when you first got your diagnosis, whether you fell apart on the inside and nobody else saw it or you fell apart visibly and you were crying or just everything felt harder. Like everybody experiences those, those kinds of feelings. I think we all experience them. It's just, how do we display it? Maybe everybody looks different. Yeah, I guess one thing I learned was, um, you know, at first you're trying to like, you know, be positive, be positive, you know, and don't, don't, don't feel bad about this. Be positive, be hopeful, be this, be that. And um, I think what I learned is, well, it's okay to go into those dark places, you know, and just feel really bad about it for a while. And, uh, and learn that that's and part of mad. it, too. And be mad. Feel bad, be mad. Yeah. All those feelings. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and it's such uh, a valid thing to validate your feelings because none of us go through this kind of a diagnosis and, and um, avoid feeling some kind of grief. If you guys saw the social media post that I did just a couple days ago, like, we talked to, it was like National Grief Awareness Day on August 30th. And we just talked about how all of us have gone through the grieving cycle. We're still kind of experiencing it. Because like you said before, Linda, life as we knew it before, will, I mean, it will never be exactly like that. And that acknowledging that, grieving that, allowing for that to be different, and for you to be sad about the fact that it's different, and to maybe resent it a little bit. Um, I think that's, that's a very common feeling. So here, here's something too for like the, the caregivers in the room or the, the team members. So my husband's laughing at this. So my husband felt like he, it was his job to cheer me up all the time and to, you know, don't think about it. Don't feel bad. I'm going to be here to cheer you up. I'm your cheerleader. Be positive. Be positive. Be positive. And um, finally, and it, it was just not working. You know, I was miserable and then he was upset because he couldn't make me happy, and I was mad that he was trying to make me happy, and why am I not happy, and uh, it was just this awful time in our life, and um, a friend who happens to also be a therapist finally called Colin and he said, um, you know, Linda needs to go down to that really dark place right now, and your job is not to necessarily pull her out of it, it's to crawl into that hole with her and just be with her in that dark period until she is ready to come out of that hole. Yeah. And um, I so think powerful. that was a very much a turning point in the way that we dealt, dealt with that initial, those initial couple months. Those, those first days, weeks, months are, are 
pure hell, and those are the worst. And when people say, you know, it does get better with time, I, I think it does. Oh, yeah. You know, that initial shock is just But it's hard. Like, horrible. When you tell the story, yeah. right? When you tell the story to someone, they look at you, and they're, like, watching you, and they're like, oh, my gosh, that, that sounds horrible. Are you okay? And you're like, well, yeah, I'm fine today. But, like, you know, the first three months, no, I was not. I was not fine. So, okay, I'm going to end this section with just this. This has been something that I have kind of, I don't know, I stole it, mixed it. It's, it's my quote. I call it my quote. But it's just this idea that resilience is built in the choice to get back up when life knocks you down. And sometimes um, you do crawl in the pit of despair and you stay there for a while. I think the goal and what I've heard from many patients is this idea that if you do go down there, bring someone with you so you don't live there forever. Um, and then when you are ready, then you have that support person to help pull you out, whether it's with laughter or you know, just helping you kind of see the hope maybe. Um, I think one thing that I just want to uh, emphasize is this, this uh, it was something that a doctor, my first doctor, diagnosing doctor, told me is um, she was talking about the biopsy, and then like I was debating, do I get it, do I not? And she told me that no matter what happened, that she would still treat me as her patient. Like she was, she was not going to let whatever this biopsy did or didn't say, if I got it, if I didn't, it wasn't going to affect how she treated me as her doctor or as my doctor. And she said, bottom line, she said, Danae, you have to remember that these are statistics, but you. I mean, I know we just, we just talked about the registry. We told you you're all statistics, but also you're not a statistic. You are writing your own medical history today. You're writing it by how you're living, by how you're surviving, by everything that's happening to you. And, and so, you know, you're building the data, right? So yes, in the registry, you can become a de-identified statistic. But for all intents and purposes, when it says you have a 50 plus percent chance of metastasizing as a class two, it's not saying, oh, Danae, you're 100% guaranteed to have metastasis. It doesn't like universally apply like that. And so trying to just write your own history, I think is, um, and just kind of living with that mindset that like you don't have to be that statistic and you can live even, I mean, I have a metastatic diagnosis and even with that, I have already made the decision that like, you know, just emotionally, mentally for my own coping, I am just willing to be the exception. And and that may be diluted thinking, but for now it's working, so like I'm gonna keep doing it. Okay, so Rob, let's play this clip. Yeah, I don't think we can turn it anymore. Oh, pivot. 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 Shut up, shut up, shut up. Okay, so I found this clip. Um, I've watched Friends. Many of you guys maybe have, maybe you haven't. Um, but this is, this is kind of one of the big things we all have to adjust to, right, is we have to learn to pivot as we're going through our diagnosis. So I'm going to kind of fast forward through this section because I think we've kind of covered it in a few different ways. But just generally, like, let's just, let's just acknowledge and honor ourselves for all of the times that we've gotten one answer, and then our doctor comes back and says, oh, actually, never mind, it's this. Um, and that we are the ones who have to pivot. And so I think just taking ownership of that, right, that we are kind of the drivers, and, and that we should be, that, like Carrie has been saying, we should be the drivers of our own care, and we should be advocating for ourselves, but also recognizing that, you know, we can have a plan, and we could maybe, I mean, here's the thing, when I got a metastatic diagnosis, all I wanted was all the plans. I wanted my doctor to tell me all the things, and I wanted to know exactly what was going to happen when, and all of that information. When was I going to have a biopsy? What were the treatments that were available to me? All of those different things came up. But the end of the day, at the end of the day, I couldn't actually have a solid plan until new information was kind of developed, right? When I had a legitimate biopsy to confirm, yes, this is uveal melanoma, we can treat it. Um, and so just learning to adjust when things don't go as planned 
because they really, like, they kind of, when you have a plan, it's kind of like karma. Karma just says, I'm just going to blow that up in your face. You made the plan, so here you go. Um, so, I mean, do you guys feel like you can relate on that, uh, that idea that, that you've had to pivot a lot um, in just adjusting to different things, different news? Sure. Yeah. 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 So <clears throat> I hope that brought a little comic relief as we're ending. Um, and... This was a quote from a fan fiction, so it's not like documented anywhere, but I thought this was super, um, super powerful. And I want to end with this. Um, it says, as much as I envy and sometimes loathe your ability to find the positive in everything, I don't think I'm there yet. So if you're listening to myself or Linda, and maybe you're just listening to this recording, maybe everyone in here is okay, but if you're listening to this and you're not there yet. You're not able to reframe things or to dwell on a meditative practice or to sit and be mindful in your body. If you're not there yet, I just want you to know that that's okay. And that there's going to be sometimes you're going to feel like you're there. And then there's going to be sometimes later on for different reasons, you're going to feel like you're not. And that all of those things are okay. It's kind of like we said at the beginning, there's no rule book for this. So there's not like, you know, nobody's going to give you a red card and tell you you're out, like you did it wrong. Um, so... This I'm sorry, this cancer throws so many curveballs at mm -hmm. you. You know, it's, and you really of course, no cancer pivot. is predictable, but you can have those, oh, I'm in a good place, and then you can have the, no, I'm in a terrible place. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's for probably any cancer diagnosis, but this one is kind of crazy, yeah. you know? It, it doesn't act, you can be a class two and not follow the statistic, and you can be a class one. And so that's why I think, um, I need to register in that registry database as well, but yeah, yeah. it's it's hard to always remain positive. We don't have to. We yeah. um, we have to feel the emotion we're at at the time, and that's okay. Validate that. No, I think that's so powerful, and I hope that this picture helps kind of paint that idea that you know. Um, this is what they tell you, right, in the, the clinical, like, this is the stages of grief. This is what it looks like. And sometimes it looks like, a, I don't know, like a pretty roller coaster. No, it doesn't look like that. Um, when we're experiencing grief in a cancer diagnosis, whether it's because we're pre-grieving or we're grieving the life we had before, whatever it looks like, it's messy. And I think we all understand that on some level. And it, it doesn't matter what you're grieving. If something in your life changed... <laughs> I mean, you experience grief around it. And I think that just, just acknowledging that, that's been something that I've had to really learn to do is to just get comfy, like acknowledging that grief exists and that it's not this like negative, horrible thing. It's just a very natural part of our lives. Um, but it is messy. And I hope that um, at the end of the day, if you know what we said didn't quite ring true for you or you're just sitting here thinking, well, that's great for you, but I don't feel that way, like it's okay if you're not there yet. It's okay if you don't get there on my timeline. You just, just get there on yours. Get there to a place where you can function, you can cope, and just start to learn um, and empower yourself with those skills. Remember how far you've come. Learn to pivot. Um, and I hope that you guys can go through the rest of this weekend and just uh, walk away feeling empowered. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, so just for time, if you guys have questions, feel free to find me. You can, you can message me or you can chat with me on, in person. But for time and to be respectful of our uh, round table coming up, we are going to go ahead and end. Ooh, that's not the right way. But just as a special thank you again to Castle, our premier sponsor, and to Immunocore, Idea Biosciences, Aura Biosciences, Tricellus Life Sciences, um, Delcaf, Northwest Eye Design, and Replimmune. And again, thank you to Dr. Stacy, to our host, um, to our collaborative hosts, Fred Hatch Cancer Center, the OMF Foundation. Uh, and just as a by the way, for those of you who maybe you've listened to people like Carrie on the podcast or Wendy when she talked about enucleation or, I mean, any number of people that I've interviewed on the podcast, if you have a desire to be on the podcast, um, Go ahead and you can take a picture of this. You can scan it with your phone or just message me and I'll send you the link. You can actually sign up to be interviewed in the future. I can't guarantee exactly what date, <laughs> but you can sign up for a date pending my availability and I will be happy to interview you or to do a small group interview if you would like to be a part of that and you would like to document your story in that way. And I also feature, um, here, I'll leave that up for a second. Um, I also feature stories on social media. So for the month of August, we did uh, social media story shares for like eye diagnosis month. Um, what is it called? 
National Eye Exam Month, that's what it was. And so for the entire month of August, I was sharing multiple stories on social media of patients like you and me who we've been diagnosed, right? And so we're telling what happened leading up to our diagnosis because it looks different for all of us. Linda was diagnosed in a routine eye exam. I started to go blind. Carrie had a year and a half of somebody telling her she was going blind from depression and it wasn't really her eyes. Like everybody's story is so different and helping to spread awareness is one of the, like, one of the big ways that you guys can help us as patients um, in the social media world. So tomorrow begins. Uh, officially, 7.50 is when we're gonna like, you know, go into announcements. We'll go through everything that we did like today. But for those of you here in person, uh, make sure to join us for breakfast. So thank you again to our sponsors. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.